passage we're going to be focusing on is short. So it's on the other side of this sheet of paper, but I'd like everybody to be, at least be able to have the word of God in their hand. I don't have slides today like we sometimes do. Um, hey, I, I wanted to also just... I wanted to also just thank Josh and Brando, Mike and, and Jonathan for being here this morning early and setting stuff up. That went so much better than I imagined. I mean, it's, it's already like just, like I want you all here. Like it feels so much better to be back in this room, much more than I expected. Today it just felt like, oh, I'm, I was almost in tears, just feeling so glad to be back in this room. I miss everybody being in this room, but people have different needs, comfort levels, and so I'm so glad we can do this because Daryl, you know, because all you guys, I can see you over there and when you're talking, we can see you. We, Josh has made it so clear when people were speaking. Um, so thank you, Josh, for all you're doing. Lord willing, we'll get through this sooner than we fear, but I'm so glad for what you guys have done to make this possible for us. All right. So again, I, I hope you've gotten this. We're supposed to be... Uh, in front of 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to spend most of our time in 13, but I want to at least touch on 12 briefly. Let me pray before we start God's word. I need God's help a lot, um, and so do you. So let's pray together. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Protect me from error and from leading people down the wrong direction. Give me grace to protect your word and honor your word and preach your word with clarity and with honor. And I pray your Holy Spirit would make your word not just things we hear, but something that we're transformed by. Holy Spirit, meet us today through the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts, transform our hearts, sustain our hearts, as I feel you already have this morning. You've been at work nourishing us and sustaining us. Keep, please, Lord, please, Father, keep doing that. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're in this series called Devoted. We're looking at what it means to be a church together, and we're taking a sp significant uh, space of time to look at spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts in the gathered assembling of God's people. And that's really what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, are chiefly about. As I said last week, I think there's a major idea that connects these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. And the major idea I tried to summarize this way is this. The Lord wants to care for his people through his people because he loves his people. The Lord wants to care for his people through his people because he loves his people. And Paul is spending the whole 12, 13, 14 trying to help people understand God's given you equipping. And he will give you equipping in order that you might care for one another. And he's doing this because he loves you. And, and perhaps even more than last week, I believe that idea is going to come through in what we'll look at today, 1 Corinthians 13, which is sometimes famously called the love chapter. Uh, it's the chapter that's famously read at a lot of weddings, right? I mean, I, it seems like every, probably two-thirds of all the weddings I went to, if I had to take a guess, this chapter was read. Whether people believed in Jesus and read the Bible or not, everybody in the universe seems to agree that the passage we're going to read today is beautiful literature, and indeed it is. But I want to talk about it in the context of why it's written where it's written. It wasn't written for weddings, it's written in the context of this issue of spiritual gifts that God has given the church. 
And Paul spends the chapter before the love chapter, chapter 13, he spends chapter 12 trying to explain to this church about the spiritual gifts. He's giving them a basic theology in spiritual gifts. He's telling them that these gifts are given not to allow you to boast against one another and say, ooh, I have this gift and you don't. They're not given to you so that you might envy someone else and say, why don't I have that gift that they have? No, God is a good father and he's one. His purposes are one. And so Paul has argued that this division and fighting concerning spiritual gifts, of which this church in Corinth had a lot, I mean, it was, it was going on over there, but that this division and this fighting, these jealousies, these boastings were completely and diametrically opposed to the very nature of God. The God who is the only source of all gifts has given them according to his wisdom in varying degrees to everyone in the church for one purpose, that they might build up one another. And never would he intend for them to be cause for them to become a cause of division, arrogance, and envy. And so Paul's, that's what we talked about last week, right? That was all of chapter 12. And now he's gonna move on. If you look at the end of chapter 12 and verse 31 with me, you'll see him kind of summarizing everything by saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what Paul's purpose is here is he's trying to pivot and move from giving them a basic theology of why the gifts to explaining specific applications in their gathered meeting on Sundays, just like this. He's gonna say, when you're gathered on Sunday, here's how I want you to use the gifts. So that's why he says, but earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. But then he stops in mid-thought, and he doesn't do that. And you can see it because he'll pick up at the end of what he says at the end of, thir- of, of 12 in verse 31, but earnestly desire the, the higher gifts. It's, it's almost the exact same thing he says at the beginning of 14.1. He'll say, pursue spiritual gifts, pursue love and the spiritual gifts, okay? So what's he doing? He stops in the mid of thought. He's gonna go into this tutorial on here's how your Sunday should look. That's basically what he's gonna do. Here's how your Sunday should look when you use these gifts with each other. But before he does that, he stops mid-sentence and he says this, but wait, I will show you still a more excellent way. He, he's sensing in his writing, as he's writing this letter, that his readers still need help in understanding why they should seek the gifts. They're not quite yet ready to go into the practical tutorial of the spiritual gifts. They, they need more help understanding why God's given gifts and why they should speak, seek these gifts and, and what they're supposed to be for. And so he takes a huge tangent into what has become known as one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written in recorded history. So this is a, this is a hey, I wanna tell you about something, but wait. Before I go on, I gotta tell you about this. That's what this is. Because if I keep going on, you're you're gonna miss the forest for the trees. You're gonna miss the whole point of why I'm gonna tell you all this practical stuff. So I I I gotta push in deeper into the why. And he says this. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers 
And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through this passage verse by verse and hopefully get us some nourishment from this masterpiece of the Holy Spirit if the Lord would allow through reflection and meditation on this passage. I want to start with that first introductory phrase in 14 where he says, I will show you a still more excellent way, right? That's, I think that's the, the very, very last sentence in 14, right before we get, I'm sorry, in 12, right before we get to 14. It's on the other side of the page, right before 13. I will still show you a more excellent way. This translation is a little awkward, but in the flow of the bigger text on spiritual gifts, I think what Paul is saying is, like we said, it's this, wait, 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 let me explain let me, before I keep going to the technical manual on gifts, I need to remind you of what is the very most excellent purpose of your whole lives, including spiritual gifts. And again, contrary to a million weddings in which this passage has been recited, which is great and fine, Paul makes clear right away in 13, 1, that his mind is on spiritual gifts by presenting scenarios that involve spiritual gifts. He starts in 1, 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right away, he brings up the gift of tongues, which he validates. He says later in 14, we'll see it next time, that he wishes everybody spoke in tongues as much as he did. But he says, listen, it might be the tongue of angels that God's given you, which I think tells us that there's a possibility that tongues might be human languages or angelic languages. But that's not his point. His point is that without love motivating or accompanying my use of that gift when we're all together, it's pointless. It's useless. In fact, the picture's not just useless. It's a picture of something, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. It's a picture of something calling attention to itself with no other purpose than to call attention to itself. You might have seen, like I have preachers who will speak in tongues in the middle of their preaching or in the middle of their singing on TV. And Paul would say to them, hey, if you're not going to interpret and make that understandable for me, keep it to yourself. Do you know what they're doing when they do that, Paul says? They're calling attention to themselves for, with no other purpose or no other result. They're, they're like a car alarm going off at 6 a.m. because a squirrel got too close. There's no purpose. It's vanity. It's just spectacle and show with no substance. Paul says, don't be fooled by that. 
Whether the Holy Spirit's given them that gift or not is not the issue. It's whether they're using it in a spiritual way that's the issue. Verse two, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, which again tells us something about what prophecy is. It's understanding what is hidden to others. It's understanding things that God knows that we don't. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And in this, Paul is now indicting every gift because as we'll see as we look into 14 in a few weeks, Paul is going to lift up prophecy very high in terms of its potential to love. But he says even here, even prophetic gifts, the gift of prophecy that might lead you to be able to reveal what only God can make clear. It might bring forth knowledge that no human could bring forth on their own. A particular gift of faith for a miraculous work of God might be present in someone. But without love, these gifts render all who possess such gifts meaningless and empty. And Paul doesn't even say the gift is nothing. He says that the gift user becomes nothing in the assembly to God. Now, now notice Paul is going to leave the gifts that are spectacular and sensational. And he's going to move into more gifts that we might all esteem. Whether or not we'd wonder, is tongues real, is prophecy real? Now he's going to move into other categories that everybody would say, oh yeah, this is you know, nobility and virtue. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Great acts of giving to the poor, even martyrdom, without love, I gain nothing. They don't add to any treasure in heaven if they're not done out of love. I know firsthand how love can be so lacking inside in what can appear outwardly very moral, very spiritual, very selfless deeds. I remember trying very hard early in my Christian walk to give everything to the Lord, to sign the blank check and hand it over to him and say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. And then I came into this big decision point where I had to make a decision about a job far away in California or or here in the D.C. area. And with much zeal and prayer, I tried so hard to hear God and understand the exact will he wanted from me. I spent days, Lord, what is it I should do? What is it I should do? And God graciously let me see in the process of talking to him about this that I wasn't pursuing him out of love. I was pursuing him out of fear. I was afraid of doing the wrong thing. I was afraid of showing myself to be a fraud. I'm afraid that someday I might hear, I never knew you. Fear of being lost. These were the things that were dominating my decision-making process. It was not love for him. And he gently just said, Albert, This isn't the way I want this relationship to go. This isn't love. You're not doing this because you love me. Now the Lord wants us to fear him. But a holy, reverent fear, not a sniveling, tyrannical fear. The respect towards our heavenly father. But our maturing is to lead us to deeper and deeper levels of love for him as we recognize who he is, his heart, his grace, the safety we have in him through his son. And I just wasn't there. Another instance in the midst of a mammoth decision, another one, many years later, I, I, this had to do with seminary and where I was going to move it home or not, how I was going to pay for it. I was trying really hard years later 
to climb the ladder of spiritual accomplishment. I wanted to be a great Christian with a sold-out soul. I didn't want to be like a compromiser. I wanted to be in the elite Christian core. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That was going to be my motto. In my mind, I was going to be like Jim Elliott, the martyr to Ecuador, or a quieter Billy Graham, whether people knew about me or not. And as I wrestled through that decision, I remember the Lord coming to me one day in prayer and and saying through the Holy Spirit, Albert, the fact that my son laid down his life for you means absolutely nothing to you right now in this decision-making process. This is all about you becoming Jim Elliot in your eyes. It's very humbling. And I still struggle with those Phariseeical, self-righteous motivations and fear. It's all in there. And God says, If it's not from love, it doesn't gain anything for you. Theologian D.A. Carson, he tries to apply Paul's, if not love, it's nothing, to the modern church with some scathing blows. He says this, if Paul were addressing the modern church, perhaps he would extrapolate further. You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there's a certain style of worship, whether it's formal or stately, or whether it's exuberant and spontaneous, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that speaking in tongues attests to a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there's not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. In none of these instances does Paul depreciate spiritual gifts, but he refuses to recognize any positive assessment of any of them unless the gift is discharged in love. So right in the middle of this argument that this church in Corinth was having about spiritual gifts and power and what was real ministry and what was not, Paul just lays it down through the Lord. If you don't have love at the core, it's nothing. You've literally missed the entire point. So now Paul says, let's talk about what might be missing that we must strive for. Let's take a sort of diagnostic test to evaluate our hearts right now. That's what he says to the church. He's doing that with us through the Holy Spirit this morning. Here's what love is. Love is patient and kind. You want to get excited about something? Something miraculous, sensational? Here's what gets God excited. Patience and kindness born out of love. Love endures when it's not easy to endure. It, it waits and it forbears It's patience when your flesh wants to respond to its own way and say enough and even retaliate. Love is kind. It does not retaliate. It responds in kindness. And if you were a mom or a dad, you are probably immediately convicted right now. (laughs) If you've been a brother or sister, you should be immediately convicted right now. Love does not envy or boast He says in verse four and five, it does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
Paul now speaks to the hearts of those who wish they had the gifts they don't. He says love doesn't envy. It doesn't envy what others have that you don't have that you wish you had. Neither jealousy or this sense of inferiority or the anger that rises up from that sense. None of that's from God. It's, It's from a heart that's about you and not love. And of course, this is a great lesson and gives great freedom if we heed it. And I have to heed it again and again. Aren't we sometimes speared with a sense of emptiness at what we don't have that someone else has? The family situation we wish we had or we imagine they have. The, the, the job or the promotion that we wish we'd gotten that they got. The money that they have that we wish we had. The friendships or the relationships we wish we had that they had. The gifts, right? The smarts, the popularity that we wish we had that they have. We grieve for what they have that we don't. The Lord says, that is not love. That is not for me. That will kill you. That envy, that covetousness, It it will only pierce your heart. Let it go. The Lord says in his word, those who fear me, they lack no good thing. If you follow me, if you trust me, even with the mustard seed of faith, struggle to follow me, I promise you will lack no good thing. Whatever is truly good for you, I will never withhold from you. And then Paul speaks to those who take pride in their gifts. It doesn't boast. Love doesn't boast. It's not just not envious. It doesn't boast. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, The Lord is high, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty, the proud, those who think they're something, he knows them, he knows them from afar. He stands back. He doesn't draw near to them. Our world increasingly celebrates songs that boast about how much money we have or the sexual exploits and conquests we've made. Athletes increasingly love to boast about their skills, their rings. We even have politicians who boast about ratings. None of these are signs of virtue, men and women. These are signs of drifting far from the Lord. And Paul says love is not rude. The word rude, it's used to describe disgraceful behavior. But it may not look so extreme on the outside. This word rude is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about how a man should not intentionally lead on a woman's affections and then fail to marry her. He's treating her rude. And that's against God's heart. He's leading her on and provoking her emotions and her affections. But he's not willing to commit to her. God says that's not love. Love spurns rudeness and it embraces graciousness to all. I love this saying. A true gentleman can be known better for the way he speaks to his servants than for the way he speaks to his king. A true gentleman is known better for the way he speaks to his servants than the way he speaks to his king. Love is not arrogant or rude. And then Paul says it does not insist on its own way. 
Being loving, it does not mean that we don't enjoy life or the gifts God gives us. That's why he gives us gifts. He wants us to enjoy them. Sunshine and cheeseburgers and good relationships and amazing music. But, but love does not hold up its rights and its entitlements when other people might be served better. Love says, you want to wear a mask? Wear a mask. Love says, if you don't want to wear a mask, if I need to, I'll stand back. Love says, come in person if you feel like you need to be online. You know, love does not insist on its own way. Love, as Paul says in Philippians, does not look out for its own interests only, but it looks out for the interests of others. He goes on, it's not, love is not irritable or resentful. Love is not irritable. It, it doesn't make others walk on eggshells. You ever make your family, your friends walk on eggshells? I have. Love is not thin-skinned, simmering just below the surface. Love does not sign up for the social media age of outrage. Where, where these trenches we dig on the left and on the right, they, they, they just make us trigger happy to, to ring alarms at the slightest offense from someone else. Oh man, I gotta, I gotta get back to them. I gotta say this back. I saw that tweet. I'm, they're wrong. I'm just gonna pound them. You know, that's just not love. That's destruction. And even we as believers can get into these battles on social media, face posting, things we would never say to somebody sitting down over a cup of coffee. But because we can just write and step away and because we got a thousand people looking at what we're saying, our hair on the back of our neck gets up and we just go fight. That's not love, that's destruction. Love is not resentful. It, it keeps no record of wrongs in another translation. To resent is to keep the record of wrong. It might be said that resentment is drinking poison hoping that the other person will die. Resentment is drinking poison yourself, hoping that your enemy will die. God says, let resentments go. I will do justice. Leave justice. Leave vengeance to me. You forgive. That's freedom for you. Freedom for you who needs my forgiveness. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. When, when we see someone that we think deserves punishment, when we see them get what we think is coming to them, we might say smugly to ourselves, finally, oh man, I'm so glad they're getting what they deserved. Serves them right. God says, that's not my heart. The Lord says through the prophet, I take no delight in the death of the wicked even though I've brought their death to pass, even though I'm bringing them to judgment, I take no delight in it, but, but my heart is rather that they would repent. And this goes even deeper, I think. We, we, we can actually begin to feel the dark satisfaction, can't we, of sensational news. Just reading stories about darkness, gossip, news of scandal, even tragedies, we can become cold to the real pain in them. And these things become a source of stimulation. We can start to quietly rejoice at wrongdoing. Just from watching the news or looking at 
CNN or Fox or Drudge. We just, oh man, can you believe that? Wow, you know, it just stimulates. Again, Carson describes this fake kind of self-righteousness. It, it, it pretends to have moral indignation in the face of some scandal, but secretly inside it revels. It enjoys the morsel of the, of the vulgarity, of the crudeness. God says that's not love. No, may the Holy Spirit cleanse us from that. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Have you ever found yourself criticizing someone or something and starting to enjoy the criticism of them? Yeah, they did this thing that's wrong, and you're just kind of like, as you say that, you're getting higher and higher in your heart. And as you say that, they're getting lower and lower in your heart. You begin to enjoy that sense. Love, Barrett says, Sky Barrett, (laughs) the theologian, he says, love does not seek to make itself distinctive by tracking down and pointing out what is wrong in the other. It's glad to sink low in its own identity if it can rejoice at what is right. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a little bit tricky to, to, uh, to translate. You know, love believes all things. Does love believe in Santa Claus? <laughs> right, that's not what he means. Other translations have always. Love always bears. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always endures. And Paul's not so much saying, here's a list of all the things that love believes. He's saying, listen, love never ends. He's about to talk about that. We'll get into that next time. But love never ends. Love does not give up. Love does not give up. It always bears. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always endures. Love does not give up. It perseveres in the face of difficulties. It perseveres in enticements and temptations to throw in the towel. It's not gullible. Love's not naive. It doesn't throw its pearls before swine. Love doesn't give to dogs what is sacred. Love knows better. Love is not a fool. But love does not forget to forgive the 70 times 7 sins. Love doesn't fail to leave the 99 to go after the one. Love always rejoices more over the one who repents than the 99 who don't need to. Love is willing to suffer for love's sake. It endures all things. It bears all things. Love keeps a firm eye on God's faithfulness and God's power to hold it up. And so with a firm eye on God's faithfulness, love risks trusting instead of embracing cynicism. Love risks hoping instead of embracing easy, tired hopelessness. Hoping yet again that God will be true to his promise and bring good out of what is broken that he has called us to. The broken places he's called us to serve in. Love hangs on. There's so much application, you know, in this passage for literally every moment of our lives. Think of what this picture of love means for our relationships, for our heartbreaks, for our anger, for our failures. Think of what it means for how we talk to each other, for how, as I said, we post on social media or respond to the inflamed tweet. 
Think of what it means for how we just treat people at work. Think of how it sets us free from the prison of coveting and envy. If we can embrace this, if we can experience the truth of this in our actual soul. See, it is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the history of the universe. It's written by the Holy Spirit. It's made up of what we all long for. Because it's made up of the soul of God. What Paul is talking about here is not just how we should behave and act. He's talking about the very nature of God in these passages. See, I want to remind you of something really important that I, I can't presume will be clear to you from just this chapter. This description of love in chapter 13, it's no less a description than the heart of God, than the heart of Jesus Christ for you. However you think of God's heart towards you, it needs to reflect the principles of love in this description. Jesus says to you this morning, I am patient and kind towards you. My mercies are new every morning. And whoever comes to me, I will never turn you away. Jesus says, I do not envy or boast in arrogance. Though I do boast in my Father, yet I am humble of heart. Jesus says, I am not rude, but I am gentle. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I do not insist on my own way. I did not insist on my own way. But when I was in the garden, I said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But if not, let your will be done. Your will be done. And I laid down my life instead of insisting on my life for you. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Instead, he says, I sympathize with what you go through. I sympathize. I became a human being so I could sympathize with your weaknesses and your temptations. And I always live to intercede for you at my Father's right hand. I'm not irritable. I don't snap and go off in a moment. My anger is not pent up. My mercy's pent up. My anger has to be provoked over a long time. I'm slow to anger. And Jesus says, if you will trust me to be your sin bearer, I will keep no record of your wrongs, but I will cover them all with my blood. That's who I am. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of the heart of God and what our hearts are capable of becoming through the power of his Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, either here in the room this morning or on on screen, and, and you're feeling far from God, remember that this is who Jesus is. And through this chapter and the truths in it, run to him this morning with renewed hope in his loving heart. And if you do not know if you are a believer, if you don't know if you've ever come to a place that you have a relationship with God through Jesus, please either talk with me after the service 
or email me. I'll, I'll, I'll put my email on the chat if you don't close. And Brandon, you help me remember. But if you're online and you just, you're just convicted, I just really don't know if, if, if I belong to Jesus. Please talk with me. I, I would just love to talk to you about that more and help you understand. There's nothing I'd rather do than to help you find the Savior who is love personified in this chapter. But, but let, me, let me close with a couple of applications for, for our church as we've been going through this series last week and today on, on spiritual gifts, this particular focus on spiritual gifts. Because th- this is, remember, the specific context here. It is spiritual gifts in the church. Paul is saying love is the goal of spiritual gifts. Love is to be the motive for spiritual gifts. All this glorious truth about the nature of love that we looked at today, it is, it is a, like a diamond set in the ring of the gifts God gives to his people. The gifts God gives to his people are, are a setting for the diamond of love in the middle of that ring. That's why Paul says, as we showed you, immediately before this chapter, he says, desire the spiritual gifts. Desire the greater gifts. And in 14, he'll start with, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. That's what's, that bookends what we looked at today. And so here are some applications specific to spiritual gifts. Here's my appeal to you. First, please be open to and desire gifts from the Holy Spirit for love's sake. I think though we're a small church, we are a church with wide degrees of experience and sentiment regarding the spiritual gifts. Some of us have been hungering for a long time for a much greater expression of what we might call the miraculous, prophecies, miracles, healings, words of knowledge, faith for miracles. And some of us are are much more functionally comfortable if, if we could just major in the gifts that we're used to, teaching, Wisdom, leadership, administration, helps, giving, mercy. But can there be any doubt from all that we've looked at last week and the intentions of the heart of love today that we need all these gifts? That we need them all. That's why they're all here. That's why God gives them all. Can there be any doubt that that these gifts, all of them, are crucial ways that God has designed that we will and must, in a sense, need each other? That's his will. Remember we read last week, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The gift of healing cannot say to the gift of teaching, I don't need you. The gift of administration cannot say to the gift of prophecy, I don't need you, weirdo. That's a headache for me to try to figure out whether this is the Lord or not. No, Paul says you can't say that. You need each other. And I've, I've, now, we ultimately only need God, but these are God's words. The I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the implication is just what I said, that we need one another's various gifts to fulfill our common purpose to love each other and to be a healthy church. This is what the Bible says. This isn't Kenneth Copeland, folks. This is God's word. Kenneth Copeland is a bad dude. Let me say it vocally and out loud. (laughs) And anybody who loves Kenneth Copeland, you need to be really careful about that. I don't care if it's Todd White. I don't care who it is. So 
I'm just naming names a little bit today. Secondly, I appeal to you, please, don't let Kenneth Copeland scare you away from good, real gifts that God gives to his church, testified by his holy word. That's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So my second appeal is this. Be in regular prayer right now for our church about gifts that God wants to give this church. We are in, we're, we're, you know, for three years it feels like, you know, we've been a tender shoot out of dry ground. We're not Jesus, but we're his bride and experiencing that way. But we, and with COVID and this disjointedness, it, it's, it's, it's even more easy to feel brittle and vulnerable as a church. And I'm just appealing to you. Preserve our church through praying for God to preserve it, through the gifts that he wants our church to have so that the church would be supplied for the common good of all. Ask him to clarify the gifts that are already here that need to be used more fully for him. Ask him what gifts he wants to still give us, to strengthen us with. Ask him if he can help you not be on the sidelines, if he'd help you move closer to the center. Or if you're closer to the center, if you need to get some Gatorade and some orange slices and some other people need to come in and help you. But care about this church through prayer and preserve this church through prayer. God cares about his bride. He cares about this church. Don't leave her through prayerlessness. Nourish her through prayer. Pray that as God does answer this prayer, he'd help us also to keep love central. Lord, I'd love to have this gift if I could love with it. I'd love to be better at administration if I could love with it. Oh, Lord, would I love to be better at administration. <laughs> Would I love to be better at leadership if the Lord would give me that gift? But maybe he has the gift for one of you. And as you grow in character to do more, like Mike does. Mike Steele over there. Amazing gifts. Administration, leadership, just care, wisdom. I would not know how I would be here without that in Mike. And many of you. But anyway, my point is I'm digressing. Gifts are to love, and so we should ask, God, can I love more with gifts, please? Thirdly, as he reminds you of gifts you already have, if he confirms in you gifts you've wondered about, if he gives you gifts you didn't have, and he starts to, you start to have a sense, maybe this is where I'm called, consider if you feel like you have a place to use them here that's not yet open to you. Consider if you have a place in your mind, your imagination to use them here that's not yet open to you. And, and talk to me about it. Talk to Mike about it. Ask the Lord to move your heart. Lord, would you give me this ministry here? And, and we're trying, we need to try and think about ways that we can create, but the Holy Spirit works in you as well. But a significant part of shepherding the church for me is, and, and, and for Mike is equipping you and creating smoother pathways for you to serve one another in love. That's why we're doing training on Tuesday nights. For, for instance, for one thing. But this is so that we can give ourselves to helping you get to places where you can give to each other in discipleship context, like the DRs. And let me tell you, as little as we are, there's no shortage of need for you to step into here. From care groups restarting in the fall to these DRs we're trying to grow, of mutual discipleship, to youth and singles, practical ministry with Dorcas, church-serving teams like the stuff that Josh and Brando are carrying back there. Please, come and talk to me or Mike if you feel that you might at least even need help figuring this out. The spiritual gifts are meant to love one another. And I, I think that 
as we keep that in mind, as, as we seek to have God's heart about these gifts, the heart of loving one another, the heart of serving one another, I, I believe it's consistent with God's heart to be really generous, to help us know how to use what he's given us for each other, for his glory. Whew, amen, amen.